Hi, I'm Kelly. And I'm Lavinia. Welcome to There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel. Their stories, their experiences, told in their own voices. One of the reasons we started this podcast is that the first time Kelly and I met, we told each other travel stories. We were complete strangers, but after spending just a few hours trading stories about experiences in Morocco and South Korea, Italy and Greece, we were friends. Our travel stories connected us. We recognized them as important. And we came away from that first meeting feeling validated and inspired. This is the power of women's personal travel narratives. Consider our storytelling podcast a brand new passport, transporting you every week to a different place for a brief escape, sometimes far away, other times closer to home. Consider our storytellers your brand new travel friends, your sidekicks and sisters and guides. Or even therapists. And consider this your chance to hear some of the stories you may have missed. There She Goes is that simple. No chit-chat, no interviews. Just great storytelling by women travelers. We invite you to settle in for the adventure. Today we travel with Maxine Rose Shore to Iran, where she finds unexpected warmth, comfort, and trust through a silent twilight ritual with a stranger. Maxine is an award-winning children's book author and travel essayist, whose essays have appeared in numerous publications, including the Los Angeles Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Christian Science Monitor. Her memoir, Places in Time, was named the 2006 Best Travel Book of the Year by the North American Travel Journalist Association and was awarded a Gold Lowell Thomas Award. The book will be reprinted in 2022 by Adelaide Books. I'm Maxine Rose Shore, and I'm going to be reading my story, The Ritual. I was sitting in a sleeping bag, pulled up to my chin, in a heaterless Volkswagen van. It was February in Iran, and my husband Stephen and I were grinding east through the endless stretches of the valley of the Zanjan Rud. As far as we could see, there was nothing. Only snow fluffed high over the earth, merging with a white sky above. Every so often in this void, I'd see in the far, far distance a line of the tiniest flea-sized creatures. With binoculars, I would make out that it was a long camel caravan and get the eerie sense that it was deliberately placed there to mark the horizon, lest we forget the separateness of heaven and earth. It had stopped snowing, and the weather was cloudy with a chance of wolves, starving wolves that crossed the Russian border into Iran and roamed the villagers at night, looking for food. From Tabriz to Karaj, as evening fell, we were approached by villagers, warning us of this danger and begging us to drive them to their homes as they were terrified of being attacked. We had been driving the road east for long winter weeks since living Switzerland, and now we were desperately in need of sunshine. We knew that at the Caspian Sea, the weather was mild. So when we reached Karaj in the late afternoon, we turned toward Chalus, a seaside town known for its moderate winter climate. 
We planned to spend a week at a campground there, resting and sunbathing before driving on to India. Going to Chalice meant driving in below freezing temperatures through the Alberts Mountains. It meant rolling along the edges of icy cliff roads at night above lonely snow-wrapped valleys. And soon, after we began this foolhardy trip, we were flagged down by two cars of Iranian students. Much danger in the mountains, they warned. No petrol stations, no people, no help. We must go together. So there we were, a convoy of reckless souls inching our way together toward the promise of sunshine. In sharp bends, the road north rose steeply, winding us above the icy gorges of the Karaj River. The road was protected by numerous tunnels from whose gaping mouths hung long, malevolent icicle teeth as we rolled inside. On the dimming snow, piled at the sides of the hairpin cliffs, rode the stretched and gloomy shadow of our van. When night fell, the starless sky turned murky. The black air was bitter, with the kind of cold that invades you and remains. Owls cried, and hundreds of feet below us, panthers and jackals hunted. A half moon like an ice chip appeared, small and white, and then it began to snow. After several hours, our convoy stopped at a mountainside tea house above Marzanabad. Around a bubbling samovar, we all drank glasses of tea and watched the snowflakes swirl outside. I felt like I was inside a Chinese scroll painting. I was one of those very small, odd travelers aloft in a precariously perched tea house and dwarfed by mountains that loom menacingly up through a mysterious mist. Sometime after midnight, we passed through the 3,000-foot-long Canavan Tunnel. The road forked, and the students honked goodbye, heading toward the port of Bandari Shah. And we descended to the valley of the Chalus River. The snow became patchy, then completely disappeared. At daybreak, we rounded a bend, and there it was, the Caspian Sea into which the Chalus River flows blue and welcoming. When we arrived at a campground, we realized immediately that we were the only visitors to the park. We took a nap and when we awoke, the sea had changed color and a breeze had blown in. The water, now gray, was ruffled like cat fur by the wind. The wind was a disappointment, but there was no snow. The air was bracing and we had a forest of pine trees all to ourselves. Or uh, so we thought. After a few hours, we noticed a coil of smoke rising into the sky. Following it, like Hansel and Gretel, we found our way through the forest to a log hut. Assuming it must be the home of the forest ranger, we knocked on the door. We wanted to pay the camping fee, but we were also curious to see what an Iranian forest ranger looked like. The door opened slowly, and a thin young man with dark eyes stared at us. He spoke no English, not a single word, and we knew no Farsi, not a single word. So we paid the money and left. But the next day, we had a problem. 
The supply of propane in our cooking stove was nearly gone. Heating a pot of soup took 25 minutes, and at this rate, we would run out of cooking fuel in two days. The only solution we decided was to ask the ranger if we might heat up our soup on his wood stove. So that afternoon, armed with our soup-filled pot, we once again knocked on his door. He seemed to know what we wanted immediately and motioned for us to enter. Then began the strange ritual that was to occur unchanged every twilight of that week. This is how it began. We placed our pot on top of his pot-bellied stove and he, at the same time, put on a large aluminum tea kettle. Then he went into a tiny alcove and returned with two small, slightly chipped white teacups, one saucer, one small aluminum teaspoon, one handle broken from a small aluminum teaspoon, a large burlap bag, a hammer, and a pair of pliers. He placed all these objects on the floor. Puzzled, we stood and watched in silence as he went to work. With a hammer, he whapped the burlap bag, which contained Russian beet sugar in huge hard rocks. Then, with the pliers, he cracked a rock into smaller sugar pebbles. He filled a chipped china teapot with a boiling water, and after a few minutes, he poured tea into the two cups and handed us each a sugar pebble. As he owned neither chairs nor table, he gestured for us to sit atop his bed. What will he drink from? I whispered to Stephen. I don't know, Stephen whispered back. I was about to fetch the enamel mugs from our van when the forest ranger solemnly poured tea for himself into the saucer. We drank the tea, the three of us sitting cross-legged on his high bed facing the stove. He handed us the small teaspoon for stirring and he used the broken off spoon handle. He showed us how to drop the sugar pebble into the tea, stir a bit to soften it, and as it wouldn't dissolve, suck it back into our mouths, catch it between our teeth, and hold it there as we sipped the hot tea, letting the tea flow over the sugar like water over a river stone. We had many cups of tea, and he had many saucers of tea. As drinking from a saucer necessitates pouring from the teapot at least twice as often as drinking from a cup, each time he refilled, he made a gesture of apology so we wouldn't think him a bad host for replenishing his own drink so much more frequently than those of his guests. By nodding our heads and smiling, Stephen and I conveyed our complete acceptance of the situation. We sipped together harmoniously, yet never said a word to one another, not even to exchange names. After a while, the ranger stood up, retrieved a rolled rug from the corner, and spread it on the wood floor in front of us. He knelt in fervent prayer. Then he stopped, rolled up the rug, resumed his stoic cross-legged position, and poured himself another saucer of tea. After taking a sip, he looked at us with his gentle eyes, and a small sigh of contentment escaped from his lips. We nodded in agreement as if to something he had said. He smiled shyly. We smiled. We sighed in sympathy with his contentment. 
The wind whistled through the pine trees, making the cones fall at intervals on the roof with a loud clonk. After an hour or so, we took our soup, we thanked him, and we left. Every day for a week, the ceremony was exactly the same. The immediate welcoming, the whacking of the sugar, the two cups, the saucer, the spoon, the spoon handle, the wordless apology and assurances, the prayer, the smiles, the sighs, and the silence, the big, wordless embrace of silence. The ritual was infused with a peace that comes from a complete language barrier. It held the simple, satisfying communication of people who cannot speak to each other. By not attempting talk, we avoided those pocket-sized dictionary conversations replete with non-sequiturs, embarrassing words, obligatory smiles, head-nodding, and hand-gesturing. But the trouble with knowing a little of a language is that you are restricted to talking only of things for which you've remembered the vocabulary. But in those afternoons in Iran, we were forced to acquire a rapport rather than to express ourselves. From stillness to devotion and back again, we were part of a wordless play in which we all knew our parts. It occurred to me then that polite ritual, more than anything else, keeps us civilized and often safe. Day after day, between dusk and dinner, we drank tea, and we found comfort in being together. Then, at the end of the week, we left Chalus and never saw him again. We drove away, leaving him alone, entirely alone, with his tea things, his forest, his faith, and for his mosque dome, an arch of blue winter sky. You've been listening to There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's stories are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. We hope you'll be back next week for another story and another stamp in your new passport.